Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. On today's episode, we ask why the government isn't pivoting any of its COVID policies in response to the vaccine news. And you ask us, what is Keir Starmer's endgame with Labour anti-Semitism? So we've woken up this morning to the news that the Oxford-AstraZeneca vaccine is 70% effective and 90% effective when a smaller half dose is given first and then followed up with a full dose. So pretty good news. We're also speaking on the Monday morning of lots of announcements from the Prime Minister being trailed in the press. We're expecting an announcement shortly on the new tier system for England. And on Tuesday, we're expecting an announcement about arrangements for Christmas. And then on Thursday, we are expecting an announcement on which areas will be put into which tiers. Stephen, even though this isn't the official You Ask Us section, I was thinking we could talk about a question that was sent in, sort of pulling in these different themes together around the tiering system, around Christmas and the various vaccine announcements. So we've been asked, why is the government so far failing to pivot any of its COVID policies in response to the vaccine news? And this person says public sector pay freezes and the argument over Christmas tears feels odd given the vaccine news. Do you think there'll be a change? First of all, do you think that that's a fair characterization that the government isn't really adapting its coronavirus policies to these new announcements? And do you think it's likely to and should it be? So I think it is a fair characterization, right, that we have this slightly strange situation where like even the Oxford vaccine, right, we shouldn't forget. And yeah, like Londoners and, and other people in, in big, diverse cities in the UK will likely have a BGCT scar, for which is the TB vaccine, which is in of itself only 70 to 80 percent effective, right? Like a 70 percent effective vaccine is you know, much better than we could have reasonably hoped for at the start of this process. And yet, yeah, this weird thing is, yeah, like, you know, there's still this kind of debate in the Tory party about like, you know, do we learn to live with it? Or do we hide forever? And it's just like, well, neither, guys, neither of those options is really relevant. And we have a public sector pay freeze, which is being explicitly argued for on the idea of like, 
well, the private sector is having a tough time, which is both an important political argument in that like, that's why it's electorally effective, but it's also actually a really important policy argument, which is that pay freezes work, in inverted commas, as a way of government saving money in the short term, although the evidence is, is basically the second you stop pay restraint, which you end up being forced to eventually, you just like have like sort of large bit of in pay inflation, which like wipes out the, the savings in inverted commas that you've made over the period. But the reason why they, they work in the short term is they allow you to save money without suffering because of retention, right? So like teachers don't go, do you know what, this is a fairly difficult job. Who needs this? Yeah, like doctors don't go, I hear New Zealand is wonderful this and every other time of year. All of those problems don't become acute. Mm -hmm. Assuming that you have a depressed overall labour market. But the evidence from the summer and the evidence from across the world is that the second you can lift any of these restrictions, you get a pretty healthy immediate recovery, right? That is the central argument for all of the economic support mechanisms is that broadly, because this is not a crisis caused by a an underlying problem in the economy or an underlying problem in the global economy, then the second you can stop having these restrictions, then you then you know the economic recovery happens fairly quickly. So I think it is it is true to say that a large chunk of, of the government's internal debate doesn't make very much sense, not least because we are potentially looking at a situation where we will have a Christmas that results in a higher rate of infections which in of itself has implications for the NHS, NHS's capacity, which might mean that we then roll out vaccines later than we otherwise would. None of which I think really makes sense when the central scenario is that you can end most of these measures in April. And like the pessimistic scenario is that you can end most of these measures in the summer of next year. So, yeah, I think it is a bit weird. And I think it does just come down to the fact that like, the mood in the parliamentary party is so fractious now for a variety of non-COVID reasons, then like no one can quite go, oh, wait a second, do I actually want to confront the prime minister about this thing now? Or am I actually just annoyed with him about other things? And that's why you have a situation where like, like the reason why government policy is what it is, is because it's about trying to chart some type of middle course between dealing with the public health crisis and keeping the Conservative Party from being further divided despite the fact that it's not clear that the thing that they are divided over really applies anymore. It's interesting, isn't it? Because Matt Hancock did the, did the morning broadcast round this morning and he was asked for his, his reaction to the Oxford vaccine news. And I thought, I'm paraphrasing him because I can't remember exactly how he worded it, but I thought that part of what he said was very revealing in that he sort of said that this had vindicated the government's response that and then he sort of summarized what he thought that response was and he he felt so pleased that you know because this had been their central scenario the whole time that you try to protect jobs and keep cases low but that it would be a vaccine that would eventually get us out of this but I, I think that the way he put it was interesting because the central argument the whole time has been that he and Rishi Sunak didn't have the same strategy or analysis of how this would play out and in a way I think when he says the government has been vindicated I think he kind of meant I've been vindicated in that he's been arguing privately all along that this is a sort of temporary emergency and you do what you can to support the economy and support jobs and to get through it until you have a vaccine whereas Rishi Sunak very much not alone in this along with 
probably the vast majority of conservative backbenchers was more of the view that this was a longer term problem and that we had to to learn to live with the virus as as the phrase has gone. And now, as you say, we have this very clear end point, whether it's the worst case scenario or the best case scenario, broadly, things should begin to go back to normal next year. So in a way, a lot of this big debate around lockdowns and, and the government's coronavirus strategy should be resolved. But it isn't exactly like you say, we have this kind of unusual coalition of conservative backbenchers ranging from one nation Tories like Mark Harper, who was chief whip under David Cameron, right the way along to Steve Baker, you know, of ERG fame, all arguing against another lockdown. And Steve Baker was also doing the broadcast round this morning, making the case that the government would need to publish a full economic analysis of the impact of their restrictions after the 2nd of December. And it's interesting, exactly like you say, it's it's a little bit like they're fighting yesterday's war because really you're only talking about strategy for December, January, February, March, which given how long we have been under restrictions of varying kinds, it's not very long anymore. Even if worst case scenario, the vaccine rollout is really difficult and or there's, there are safety concerns, we know that the spread of the virus decreases anyway when the temperature picks up. So even with nothing changing in terms of interventions, the landscape would be a bit sunnier anyway in March. But like even like worst case scenario, you can kind of broadly bank on this being a a short term problem. And yet there are still such intense divisions in the Conservative Party. And it's like, a as you were kind of hinting, it is a bit of a proxy war now for other concerns and grievances that people have had with Boris Johnson and number 10. And I think also it's maybe just a, a result of the way the most recent lockdown in England was announced. So there was that briefing to newspapers, the one that has sparked the leak inquiry that Boris Johnson was considering a second lockdown before it it had been properly decided on. And then they were bounced into announcing it over the weekend, much earlier than they'd expected. And those graphs, we haven't really talked about this very much on the podcast. I think that Anush and I did once for a You Ask Us section that you weren't here for. But those graphs that the government used have been a really big sort of talking point in conservative circles, in like among conservative MPs and conservative publications, because some of them were using out-of-date data. And it didn't seem basically that the slides that they had put together really hastily to make the case for the need for the lockdown were the same as the things that had actually prompted Boris Johnson to make the decision that we need another lockdown in the first place. And we saw that, you know, there were leaks of projections that the NHS in certain areas could be overrun very, very soon and overrun everywhere by Christmas if the government didn't act to bring in another lockdown. And we know that that's the, the central reason why Boris Johnson, a man loath to take that kind of unpopular decision, did decide to actually take it. But that was never pro- officially published. And there's been so much debate around those graphs. And the government did kind of try to rectify it by having another press conference where they had the head of NHS England 
just presenting one slide with one very clear graph and it wasn't projections it was where we currently stood to kind of make a clearer simpler case for the need for this lockdown but I just think the information used in that initial rushed announcement of the second lockdown did a lot to damage trust in the government's approach and it's being used as the, the sort of main basis for this ongoing Tory rebellion. I suppose the question is, what actually do do we think are the ramifications of this? Like, is this just hot air, the, the threats of a conservative rebellion over this and conservative concerns, given, as we've been saying, that there isn't much time left? And it seems quite clear that we don't need to be having a debate in this way anymore. So, yeah, I, I similarly took exactly the same interpretation of Matt Hancock being like, this validates the government. And it's just like, I mean, this validates some of the government's decisions. Right? It, <laughs> it, it, it definitely validates the decisions you wanted to make, including mm-hmm. all the decisions the government, in fact, didn't make. And it definitely validates the decisions you drove forward. And I think like the, the fascinating thing, and I don't think that this was ever possible because of, you know, media incentives, the way internal and external party conflict works. But I think it's fascinating that actually, objectively, Rishi Sunak has had a terrible crisis, mm. right? He just has, right? His, his policy and political diagnosis of this problem was wrong. Rishi Sunak's political diagnosis was that a vaccine wouldn't happen. And then we were looking at a situation in which lockdowns could be permanent, which actually, like, government should be concerned about a downside risk. But the downside risk of us not having a vaccine would have been one in which we had a higher level of mortality. It would not have been one in which we were in lockdowns forever, right? That just would not have happened, right? Like, yeah, the downside risk was like people being like, hey, do you remember 2019 when doctors didn't dress like astronauts? Like, we, we weren't ever going to end up in like in that, that scenario. Whereas like Matt Hancock, who's, you know, a political punchline in lots of ways, ultimately, like, his argument about what they should do has been validated. And it's, yeah, and it, it's fascinating because... You know, ultimately, like, Matt Hancock ain't going to defeat the, the Labour Party in 2024, right? I think the one thing we can safely say is <laughs> if Starmer is not Prime Minister, it won't be because Matt Hancock is. Ironically, Labour would be much better off if the people we were saying, like, yeah, who's had a great crisis, Matt Hancock, rather than the person who everyone is saying is has had one. And so I think it matters for that reason, right? In the, the, the fact that no one in the Conservative Party has gone, oh, wait a second, the internal parameters of this debate have changed, mm. are linked to the reasons that no one in Westminster is saying, look, the internal parameters of this debate is changed. But of course, it is true to say, and I've written this before, that Anne Leith Dodds has consistently gone, actually, don't do this. But like, in a way, it doesn't matter. What matters is that she hasn't been able to get purchased for that for a variety of reasons. Again, I don't think any of this is actually inside the control of any of the participants on either the Labour or the Conservative side. So, But it matters for that reason, right? Then Rishi Sunak exits this crisis with, you know, still a lot of credibility in the bank. And politics will, I think, return to a slightly more traditional argument about tax and spending, which is traditionally a political argument which has favoured the Conservative Party. The second reason why it matters is rebellion is a habit. The reason why whips pull out all of the stops to prevent MPs rebelling for the first time, the reason why you're always better off pulling a vote rather than losing a vote, is, and I know I've done this routine multiple times on the podcast, but like broadly, the first time an MP rebels, they go like, oh, you know, what's going to happen to me? I'm entering a dark wood. Mm. The day after they do it, you know, like a bunch of, you know, their mates in other parties text them being like, well done. A couple of people who didn't rebel will be like, actually, I think you did the right thing. I wish I'd done it too. 
And yeah, they get a snotty message from the whip or from the minister or from Downing Street. They got a snotty message from them yesterday, right? That hasn't changed. The question that would be keeping me up at night if I were Rishi Sunak, if I were the chief whip, if I were Boris Johnson, is is a Conservative MP who rebels over lockdown a reliable vote for tax rises? Doesn't seem likely, does it? Mm. That's why it matters. Is that like, then, although they kind of, in some ways, right, getting rid of Dom Cummings is, was, is a bit like us belatedly going to lockdown in March, right? They've hammered the like root cause of the initial infections, but the virus of dissent and rebellion is, is circulating freely in the population now, and that is not going to change. And I think that is 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 an important legacy of of all of this is the fact that like even when the kind of cause of rebellion goes away, the rebel spirit remains undaunted. That is such a good point. It's sort of like the the belated answer to what I imagine must have been a you ask us question months ago, like does it matter that MPs are rebelling in large numbers against the proxy voting arrangements that Jacob Rees-Mogg brought in over the summer after lockdown was first eased? And it, and it just shows that it really does, that that was a vote that the government shouldn't have lost and it was embarrassing and kind of silly at the time and it was bad press to see those stupid, like all that stupid footage of all the MPs queuing up to vote, even though it was quite fun seeing if you could name all of them. But it does kind of show that someone like Jacob rees who we don't really talk much about anymore because he isn't really allowed to do anything anymore. But, you know, it just shows that having someone like Jacob rees in your cabinet, you know, he does prove to be a liability in tiny ways, and you don't see the consequences until months later, where ultimately the mishandling of that proxy vote thing meant that lots of MPs who had been unhappy with the government for a long time, who had been in many cases fired by Boris Johnson months before, but who had been completely loyal up until that point, made their first rebellion over a really stupid issue that was resolved quite soon afterwards anyway. And those are the people. I mean, I'm thinking of specific people. Those are the people who are, again, threatening to rebel over over the imposition of more restrictions beyond the 2nd of December, people who would never have rebelled before. And they, they caught the, the rebellion bug, basically, over a really insignificant issue over proxy voting. So it just shows there's the wider thing about all of the U-turns and, and the mishandling of various things over the summer. But even you can't even afford to to lose the stupid votes. You know, you can't afford to make those little mistakes because it enforces a pattern of behaviour that becomes, you know, more more serious and more significant. Yeah, and actually the, the proxy vote is such a good example because there are so many people, you know, if you're ever bored, you know, let's say you live in a major city and you're kind of going to tier three on the December the 2nd. <laughs> if you're ever bored, right, really go through the division list and there are so many people in it who had never rebelled before or since. And now you're like, you turn on the radio and they're going, well, actually, I think the government's handled this badly. You look at their Twitter feed when the whips are going, hey, could you send a tweet defending Pretty Patel? And they're nowhere to be seen. Mm. They're saying they're going to rebel over this. And it's just like, and yeah, that was like a classic, a classic of the genre. Now, I will always love the initial attempt to do distance cons. And I feel bad about the fact I keep using Virginia Pogby as, as an example of this, but it, it was nonetheless like the most perfect distillation of like lobby fodder MP voting for measure than they visibly don't understand was, you know, produced this hilarious scene of the new MP for the constituency going, voting against the amendment. So I indicating that she understood this new system, 
but having to have it explained to her twice how you voted under this obviously confusing and ridiculous system. <laughs> and yeah, like the, the fact that like, you know, and they, they do do it slightly differently, as you say, like proxy votes are sort of back in. That in many ways, like most of the changes that were so important to Rees-Mogg have since been unpicked. Mm-hmm. The thing that hasn't been unpicked is a bunch of people. I mean, one of those rebels said to me the other day, they're like, oh, I might rebel on the final trade deal. And I was like, well, you can't actually, because like there is no vote on the final Brexit trade deal. <laughs> I admire the chaotic energy you've decided to bring into 2021, nonetheless. Well, that that is so funny, Stephen, because a few months ago, a Conservative MP said something similar to me. I can't even remember what the vote was on, but they were like, oh, I might rebel on on X because they'd read about it in the paper. And I was like, I don't think there is is a vote on that. (laughs) But they they just get a taste for it. Yeah, because this is this is the thing, right? Like, ultimately, politics is, is a team sport, but it's also a team sport that is hard than, you know, I mean, so to take like Pretty Patel, right? Like, where basically you're being asked to go out and not say in these words, look, are you nuts? We couldn't possibly get rid of this person who's so important to our electoral appeal. Who cares that she's incompetent? And you have to come up with some, because obviously bullying is a moral failure, but it's also a sign that you are a bad manager, which is slightly worrying if you run the counter-terrorism department. And, you know, and this is a humiliating thing for MPs to have to do, and they don't like doing it, and that's why lots of them aren't doing it. And then one day you rebel, and you're free. You are free forever of the need to go on air and claim that the reason why a guy who worked for John Major and was appointed to his role by David Cameron found that she probably didn't mean to bully people. She just wasn't good enough at management to understand that's what she was doing, should remain in a great office of state. And so like, no wonder the second that like the spell is broken. You saw this 90-day detention with Blair, tuition fees with the Liberal Democrats in the coalition, right? Like the second that the backbenchers get this kind of taste of freedom, why would you go back? If you've been enjoying our podcast and want to find out more about what we think and some of our colleagues too, then why not subscribe to The New Statesman? You can get 12 weeks for £12. Go to newstatesman.com forward slash subscribe 12. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. And now it's time for a section we like to call... You Ask Us. Great enthusiasm since that person complained, Stephen. So today's question is, what is Keir Starmer's endgame in dealing with anti-Semitism in Labour? This obviously comes off the back of his suspension from the Labour Party and then reinstatement following a decision from an NEC panel and then Keir Starmer's decision not to restore the whip to Jeremy Corbyn as well, or if you want to be technical about it, to re-remove the whip. Well, actually, no, I think 
so I, I'm going to be a rule book nerd here. The central thing is actually he he didn't re-remove the whip because that is like the the central question which the rule book, well, the standing orders are helpfully unhelpfully silent on is are the requirements of membership of the Labour Party the same as membership of the parliamentary party? There's precedent for them not being obviously in local government where you have you know lots of things that arguably MPs might also should have like you have various candidate commitments right you can fall short of those lose the labor whip but just because you know you've been found to be like lazy or in some way unable to do the role of being a a local councillor like you know it's not an offense to be too rubbish to be a councillor and kicks you out out being an mp and there is a, a perfectly coherent argument that like the standards of good behavior seeing as he obviously has received a formal warning to be in the plp are different from that of being yeah from being a Labour member but I think the central problem of of all of of kind of yeah the original sin as it were of of Starmer's mistakes here is that I don't think he does have an end game so for example I have just drawn out a perfectly reasonable bar right which is then if you receive a formal warning under Labour's processes on uh, issues of of race and anti-racism you don't get to have the Labour whip back. And that personally is something that, you know, I mean, obviously it's not my circus, it's not my monkeys, but like that to me is a a standard that I think is perfectly reasonable. If you are Labour leadership, which is showing it wants to swerve a number of difficult issues of connection and is not a standard I myself would want to set for myself, right? If, 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 you know, if I were taking my, what is it I think Labour should do with what do I perceive the electoral strategy and interests of, of this particular leadership to be. It's not a bar I would want to set myself, not least because it's a bar that I think will be difficult to reconcile with some of the language that local Labour parties indulge in when talking about traveller communities in their constituencies. Just to be that that blunt about it, I think there is a lot of behaviour which an independent process would go, yeah, knock it off, you shouldn't have put that in your leaflet. And I personally think then it would be good if the Labour Party said, yeah, those people who've had a formal warning, if they're not willing to, you know, explicitly apologise or to submit to some form of like recognised trading provision, you don't get the Labour whip. But that's not a bar I think that Keir Starmer envisages having to meet, but it is the bar he's ended up setting. And I think like the central underlying problem of all of this is that Keir, I think, has shown that he is still seeing this as primarily an issue of management. Now, that's partly because so much of his politics is kind of based on the idea of, like, you have strong institutions, you have good processes, and, like, eventually, oh, your your intake is, is more diverse, and, you know, basically the, the whole parliamentary party, like, becomes a series of Annalise Dodds clones. Now, that there, there may be some merit in that as an approach, but I think it kind of has exposed the fact that, like, he doesn't have a political strategy here. So you just end up with this situation where, like, the Labour Party has kind of, like, ended up leaping from, like, yeah, it's kind of reacted to, like, from explosion to explosion. Like, oh, we've decided to throw this person through a process that we know doesn't work. There is literally an official report saying this process doesn't work. Don't use it. Then it gets expedited because a bunch of people on the left of the Labour Party are complaining. Then the extradited process finds he has a formal warning, which is like, well, do you get to remain to remain a Labour MP with a formal warning? You then have the vast majority of communal orgs and your own affiliate going, he hasn't apologised, he shouldn't be allowed back in. All of which comes from the central failure to have an endgame. That's sort of my read of, of it. But what do you think, Alba? Yeah, I think I agree in that the main strategy just seems to be to appear to be tough on this issue. There's nothing much beyond that. 
in that it's interesting because before Keir was elected leader, but everyone expected it to be him, there were worries from, you know, among the members of the Jewish labor movement and and certain MPs that he might be a bit wishy-washy on this or that actually he would have such respect for due process that it would be a very long time before all of the people who wanted to see some sort of line drawn under this and see cases properly dealt with, that it would be just a very long time before they saw any of that. But then kind of the opposite is slightly true. There's there's basically an, a, a fundamental contradiction now. I'm borrowing this from Sienna Rogers from Labour Lists, really good piece on this. There's basically a central contradiction, which you kind of just outlined there, Stephen, where the EHRC report has made it really clear that anti-Semitism complaints were not being handled well by the Labour Party and they recommend an independent process. Basically, everyone is in agreement that that independent process needs to be implemented. But at the same time, Keir Starmer and his team are... I mean, his spokesperson is still making the case that under, this is basically a quote, that like under Keir and Angela, they're dealing with these complaints a lot quicker. And that was still the line after the decision about removing the whip from, from Corbyn. And so I think that, I suppose the top lines are just being tough on anti-Semitism, you know, as sort of a, a kind of unconditional, harsh line on it. But in terms of the actual political strategy, I think the, from the way you've put it and the way it's been played out, he's slightly backed himself into a corner where the bar is now set very high for disciplinary issues in lots of ways. And they've been sort of making more political decisions than they may be expected to. But on the removing the whip point, I think it's good that we actually brought this up because I've seen lots of people debating this on Twitter. And I remember, I suppose what I meant by by re-removing the whip was that the argument being made by Keir Starmer's team when Jeremy Corbyn first had the whip removed was that that wasn't a political decision because when you have your membership of the party suspended, the whip is also withdrawn automatically. So there was no political involvement in that decision. And therefore, once you are remade a Labour member, you also kind of automatically get the whip restored. And it's then a political decision about whether you re-remove it. So I think it's good that we brought that up just because I've seen like just so much stuff on Twitter of people wanting to be to hash that that point out but I suppose like the fundamental point remains the same that the decision to keep the whip removed from Jeremy Corbyn suggests that there have been kind of missteps from the top of the Labour Party whether it's directly Keir Starmer's doing or his political appointments in David Evans the general secretary that they they've been focusing on being tough but maybe are not thinking five steps ahead in the way that you really need to with something like this yeah because I think like the, the thing is is then so the power of suspension pending investigation is rested in the general secretary and it is wholly within within their fiat the power in terms of the setting of, you know, the arrangement of the hearing, you know, it's competition. All of those are powers and rest within the general secretary. The question, of course, is whether or not you believe that all of these things happened without any liaising between the general secretary and the late leader of the Labour Party. In some ways, it's kind of redundant because ultimately the job of the Labour leader as the 
kind of party's leader, is everything you do ought to set institutional expectations to a point where what your GenSec does ought not to have to flow from them telling you stuff, right? You know, like, obviously, you know, like, being poled is a much easier job than being Labour leader. But, like, broadly, it's not like I need to tell you, by the way, our underlying assumption is that cuts to the public realm have not been a good thing. <laughs> That's, like, a thing which ought to just be transmitted. And, yeah, I think the thing is that, like, the problem is, is, is like, there's, like, a position of wanting to show that, like, the Labour Party gets it and has changed. And I think that... You saw that a bit with the initial press conference, right? And you can see how it's created this entirely false impression in the Labour Party, right? And like, you know, when people talk about like, oh, you know, we all back the recommendations, now we need to unify around implementing them. And it's just like, actually, guys, there's this thing that you're going to have to agree with the EHRC called an action plan. And then you just have to do it. There is no question of whether or not you unify around it. It has legal force. I mean, you know, technically, (laughs) I I see no reason why. So the the rule book gives the NEC responsibility to ensure that the party is following electoral law and related other, yeah, then it's legally compliant, basically. Which means, for example, that if, say, there was some major financial scandal and everyone went, organisations should no longer elect their treasurer, you have to appoint an audit officer or something. My read of that clause and the read of several lawyers, although obviously with the major disclosure than every lawyer I talk to regularly for journalistic purposes is an expert in policy, you know, not party rule books, thinks that you would be able to use it, use it to implement the action plan because they're like, well, I, they said, I just can't see how you wouldn't have that power seeing as that would mean you can't possibly have a situation where like a political party has some powers to avoid getting done for contempt of court, but, but doesn't under equalities law. They're like, yeah, that doesn't make any sense. But the reason why that impression done is because Starmer wanted to be like, I'm the agent of change, I'm accepting this, I'm I'm coming in and I'm a, a new leader you know, new leadership, to use the slogan that he had on the had on the walls. And I think that has partly created this space where people think then like this is a thing that they can negotiate whether or not these rule changes happen. That's not how it works. But it's also created this situation where like what he hasn't done is do any kind of like thinking or explaining about the standards the Labour leadership can still set which is obviously like an independent process is a process not an outcome right does the process take as as read than if you get a formal warning under it you don't get to be a labor mp anymore as i've said i think that's a good standard Mm -hmm. but i don't think it's a standard than keir starmer expected or wanted to set because he has yet to say so or to advance that case and that i think is like the real thing that like if yeah in terms of like you know how the labor what the labor leadership should do if they want to like get out of this like spiral of like bad consequences where they like yeah like where they are not doing a particularly great job of winning back trust but they are creating internal problems for themselves it's basically to be like okay you know like what is it that this independent process wants to do what are, what are our standards of of behavior across the piece and the second that they've done that the like Corbyn issue will kind of just take care of itself like it just fades away because you have a standard it's met or it's not met and the independent process takes care of it. But that involves having a serious thought about what your end game is, rather than like what you would like to be perceived as at any given moment. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Alva Ray, and our political editor, Stephen Bush. We're produced by Nick Hilton, and our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.